Hey guys, we are live once again. Uh, we were off last week. I was out of town. <clears throat> so this week we're picking back up in our series that we've been doing on the early chapters of Genesis, the preface to the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And we have seen how, if you followed from the beginning, if not, go to discipledojo.org slash podcast, and you can follow along <clears throat> with all of the previous studies that we've done in this series, because we were looking at the early chapters of Genesis, which are, we talked about in the very first episode, we talked about how they're very similar to the preface or, or the beginning of the movie version of the Lord of the Rings, how there was this voiceover that, you know, the directors had to cram hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of backstory into this little like 10 to 15 minute overview right at the beginning of the movie before the movie then kind of began with the title scene and the hobbits and the ring and Gandalf and all of that stuff. So <clears throat> the Bible does a similar thing with Genesis. Like the story of Genesis is the story of Abraham and his descendants and his family. But in order to even know why Abraham matters, why it's important, the Bible has to front load all of this information to put Abraham and his descendants within the cosmic situation of this world. So why should we care about Abraham? Why should we care who his descendants are? Why should we care uh, about any of what we're going to read in the rest of Genesis starting in chapter 12 going forward? Well, the reason is because the author is letting us know because from the beginning, God had a plan. God had a mission and a purpose from the beginning. And so when we see Abraham, we're seeing the, the unfolding of God's plan to save and put the world back right on track because it had gotten off track. How did it get off track? Well, Genesis tells us. Um, it goes all the way back. God had created humanity and humanity and God were, you know, um, had fellowship. And then because in Genesis three, sin enters the picture and that fellowship gets distorted and humanity because of their rebellion is driven eastward out of the garden of Eden, out of the place of fellowship with God. And so there's a rift now between God and humanity. And that rift only continues to grow in the early chapters of Genesis as humanity spreads, as Cain's descendants spread, and then as Seth's descendants spread, uh, the world becomes this place filled with violence and, and all kinds of tumult and all kinds of um, oppression and, and discord. And it's like creation is unwinding almost through human rebellion because humans were the crown of God's creation. So Genesis, these early chapters are showing us in, in, a, in a macroscopic view, they're showing us how things went so off the rails so that when we meet Abram in Genesis chapter 12, we can zoom in then on his family and his line. So everything that we've looked at in Genesis 1 through 11, these, these cosmic orders of creation and these national and international events, these worldwide events, in Genesis 12, the, the, everything takes a dramatic turn and it kind of zeroes down in on this guy, Abram, and his family. Because what we find out is that it's through Abram that God is going to bring the world back into relationship with himself. 
through your seed, Abram, your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. This is what we read in Genesis 12. So what you have then, again, to reemphasize, these opening chapters of Genesis are different than the following chapters after chapter 12, because the scope of what they're dealing with is, is cosmic. It's, it's worldwide. And it's doing that just like in the movie Lord of the Rings, where the whole opening scene was about these epic worldwide or middle earth wide battles and, and entities and dark forces and forces of good and age of heroes and all of these things. You're seeing that that's what you see similarly in Genesis one through 11. It's setting the stage so that when it zooms in on the story, the, the real story begins, Genesis 12, we will have it situated in, 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 a, in a world picture that we can work with. We will have the story of Abraham, not just as some random guy, but as the culmination of this seed promise that God gave to Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so that's the purpose of this. Well, this week we're coming to Genesis 6, and uh, the second part of Genesis 6, last time we talked about the, the, the age of what this age was like, the age of heroes, the age of the men of renown, the people like Gilgamesh and uh, other ancient heroes in the ancient world, and how this was an age characterized by wanting to make a name for yourself, by uh, wanton violence, by taking whomever you wanted as, as wives. And we talked about how that was pretty characteristic of this age and that the Bible is saying, yes, and during that time that your, aunt, that your neighbors looked at as the, the golden age, you know, when people were living these extraordinarily long times, which even in the ancient Near East, it, there's record that people lived super long before the flood, way longer than Genesis. Genesis ages are actually very uh, condensed and tame compared to the Sumerians Kings list, for example. We, what Genesis is, what the author of Genesis is doing is saying, yeah, that, that period of time that, that all the people around you look back to as this golden age of heroes, this is actually the worst point in human history. And that's where we're picking up in Genesis 6, because in Genesis 6, we're going to start in verse 5. We did 1 through 4 last time. If you missed it, again, go check the podcast. But in Genesis 6, verse 5, it's probably one of the worst sentences in all of scripture, like the lowest, one of the lowest points in the Bible. It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So this is God looking at humanity and God seeing this, this thing, Adam, human that I've created. I look at his heart, I look into their hearts it's only evil all the time. So during this age of heroes and men of renown that people look back to fondly, Israel's neighbors, um, Israel's like, no, no, this was horrendous. The world was, was awful. Uh, people were only evil all the time. And so God looked at man's heart, and that's what he saw. Now, verse 16, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth or in the land. And that phrase on the earth and in the land are the same, pretty much the same. You can, whenever you see the phrase on the earth, it can also be translated as upon the land or in the land. And that's important because later when we get into the flood, there's going to be a question of how far 
the flood extended. And it's important to keep in mind when we think of Earth in modern scientific terminology, we think of a globe suspended in space. When the ancients and the Israelites thought of Haaretz, the land, they just thought of land as opposed to water or sky. So there wasn't a, their, their ancient world picture, which is how they view the world, was not one of a globe suspended in space. So they wouldn't, th they, they wouldn't think of that when they think of a worldwide flood, which we're going to see. It would just be all the land that you can see was submerged. Whereas we, if we think of worldwide flood, we think, okay, water covering the surface of the globe above the hills, uh, above even like Mount Everest. So, you know, five miles worth of water, um, six or seven, however tall Mount Everest is. And so we have to keep in mind that, that this can also just be describing God looking at the land, upon the land, in the earth, wherever people are. That doesn't matter. Doesn't mean necessarily he's. You know, the text is describing a global, like a globe. Anyway, I, I only say that because it's going to be important a little bit later. But I want to mention it right when the text mentions it first. So we read that the Lord, verse six, the Lord was grieved. He was. He was. He was inwardly hurt that he had made man on the earth or in the land, and his heart was filled with pain. So this is a. This is a pause here. This is massive. The God of the Bible is not a God who doesn't feel. The God of the Bible is not the God of later Platonic or Greco-Roman scholastic understandings. He's not a God who's feeling. He, there's um, a term in medieval theology is he's impassionate, which means God doesn't feel, which is a horribly unbiblical concept. God is very passionate. Uh, our feelings are a pale shadow in comparison to the feelings of God. Like God's the only one that truly feels. Um, so this idea that God, it, it came from reasoning of like, if God has feelings, then his feelings can change. And if feelings change, that means he's getting new information. But if he's getting new information that his feelings change based upon, did he not know before? And that's that can't happen because God's omnipotent and omniscient. And so, you know, it's like this theological reasoning that really just flies in the face of what we're reading in the text. We're reading in the text, God sees the heart of humanity and that breaks God's heart. That's the takeaway. Genesis six, these um, first few verses of or verse five and six is it's God looked on the man's heart, humanity's heart and saw that it was only evil all the time. And so God's own heart was filled with pain. And that's something that we are under, like, how can God, you know, experience pain? I mean, this is the same word that's used to describe what God would do uh, or what would the woman would experience after the curse. when it says, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbearing. So it's the same term, pain. It's saying that God is feeling that. That's, that's a radical concept for people whose view of God is some static, detached, stoic, distant deity. They don't imagine that God can feel pain, but he does. And in the text, it's fascinating because it's, it's the looking into the human's heart, looking, seeing the condition, seeing how far his crown of creation had fallen and how they were consumed with evil, only evil all the time. That grieves God and it, it actually hurts his heart. Now, what that does for your theology, let it do what it does. I'm just telling you, this is what the text says. So we can try to figure out how... You know, how could that be? How could God feel pain? Um, 
fine. Work that out on your own. I mean, wrestle with it. That's what the text encourages us to wrestle with things. But it's clear that that's the state of God. God's heart is grieved because of what he sees in man's heart. And that's what the, is setting up the flood story. So the Lord said, I will wipe Adam, who I have created, from the face of the Adamah. So I will wipe, uh, NIV says, humanity or uh, mankind from the face of the earth. But you missed the wordplay. In Hebrew, I will wipe Adam from the Adamah, like groundling from the ground. Or I'll wipe the earthling from the earth. There's a, there's a pun going on there. Uh, men and animal, men and livestock, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air. So these are the these are the specific names of the creatures that were mentioned in the Genesis one account. God saying, "I'm starting over. I'm going to wipe them off." It's it, the, the crown of creation has led all of creation into ruin. For I am grieved that word again that I have made them. So this is like a hopeless situation for creation. God is grieved at the all of creation, and He's going to undo it. And this is one of the uh, key points that the flood narrative, which we're going to look at, we won't finish it today because this is a long section, but the flood narrative in the beginning, especially because of the words that are used. And remember, this is all in this early chapters of Genesis. The flood narrative is an undoing of the creation narrative. That's the theological key in it. The flood is through the language that's used and the way it's described, it is it, it, God is going to take creation back to what it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and then God created from that dark, deep, watery abyss. That's what God is taking creation back to. So it's not just this random, like, I need a punishment. Ah, flood, that's going to do it. No, God, God is specifically decreating in the flood account. Creation itself has gone astray, so creation itself is going to get undone. And the question is, will it go back to what it was in the beginning? Will God have to start over completely? Because this introduces the first dilemma. God made a promise to Eve, to the woman in Genesis 3, that through her offspring, her seed, the head of the serpent would be crushed. Through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would one day be crushed. So God made that promise. Now, with, with the downward spiral of humanity, it looks as if even that promise, human's evilness is putting that promise in jeopardy. And God's threatening to wipe the slate and start over. Well, if he does that, what happens to the promise that he made to the woman? That through her offspring, that, that's the, that, that Satan would be crushed. Because if God wipes out all of humanity, Satan's won. He's led all of humanity astray. God failed. And so that verse 8 then pops up and gives us the, the key to all of this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And, and literally the Hebrew word chen, it's the word for grace. Noah found grace. So everything is looking horrendous, but there's this little thread of hope. And it's this guy who we met in the last chapter who was introduced as in the, the line of Seth. The culmination of the line of Seth, which is the line of the woman, is going to be Noah. And Noah is going to be the one through whom the world is saved, ultimately. 
And that's what we introduce. So then verse 9, we come to another break in Genesis. And we, one of these Toledot passages, these Ele uh, Toledot, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, depending on your translation. Now we come to the next section of Genesis. And it's going to be this uh, half of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9. Is This is now going to be Noah's story and, and what comes after him. And so this begins, we, we get into the flood narrative. Now, the flood narrative, I can show you this so you can explain. You won't be able to read it because the camera is backwards. But the entire flood narrative from, from Genesis 6, 9, all the way forward to chapter the end of chapter 9. So 6, 7, 8, and 9. That whole account is written, is constructed in what's called a chiasm. And a chiasm, chi comes from the Greek letter X, and a chiasm is where things start and they build up to a middle point and then they work back to corresponding points that match. So here's visually what I mean by that is this is the flood account, all of the events of the flood, and they all correspond to each other. So this event that starts it off corresponds to how it ends. This event corresponds to this one, all the way down to the middle. And in the middle of the Noah passage, the very center in chiastic structures, the center of the chiasm is the main point of the author. Well, the whole Genesis account, the main point is chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind which is the word for spirit as well, over the earth, and the waters receded. So the center of the whole Noah story is God remembered, not just Noah, but creation. God remembered Noah and the animals, because humanity was to steward the animals, to steward creation. So God remembered that and sent his spirit, a wind, the Ruach Elohim, that was there in the beginning, hovering over the waters. And from that moment, then, creation recomposes itself. So creation is undone and it's, it, it culminates in Noah and, and this, this small thread of humanity and animal life being uh, preserved in this floating structure. It looks like everything's over. And then God remembers Noah, which to remember is a covenant term, which means he looked back upon, he, he, he decided to act upon his covenant uh, relationship. And from there, the Spirit of God, the wind of God, now starts to undo the things of the flood and recreate. And it culminates at the end of the flood account with Noah and his family being the new Adam and the new Eve. They're given a creation mandate, once again, just like the man and the woman in Genesis. They're given dominion over the earth. They're given, they're told to be fruitful and multiply. It's like Noah is Adam and Eve 2.0. And that's what we're seeing in the flood account. So the whole when people jump into this and, you know, they go to like some ark experience or some creation museum or, you know, watch some homeschool material that's young earth creationist and immediately start asking questions about things like the Grand Canyon, um, the, the, this cosmic ocean that used to surround the earth, um, all of the scientific, how did, how did all the animals on earth fit on the ark? Where were the dinosaurs in this? All of these questions that are really very foreign to the text. The text itself just doesn't go in any of those directions. 
creation science, which arose in the 1950s, 1960s, that is where people started really trying to figure out and look to uh, science to, to verify the flood story and started coming up with theories of um, not uniformitarianism, which is what people had held for a long time, but catastrophism, where the flood can explain everything. The flood can explain the Grand Canyon. The flood can explain the geological features of the earth. And there are whole ministries and there are websites and there's all kinds of stuff out there that will try to prove scientifically the flood account. And the text doesn't care about any of that. It really doesn't. Um, and, and personally, I don't think there's much merit in those approaches. I'm, I'm not a young earth creationist, cards on the table. Uh, I don't think the Bible teaches that the earth is 10,000 years old anywhere in the Bible. Uh, I think we are to look to what we find in geology, astrophysics, um, biology, any of these other fields. If we want to get kind of an idea about the earth's antiquity, uh, we don't need to look in the Bible because the Bible is not uh, pushing that. What the Bible is telling us is the origins and particularly the religious cultural origins of Israel among the peoples of the ancient Near East. And it's using similar world pictures to the people in the ancient Near East. But it takes, it has stark differences. So the flood account in the Bible is sent because God is grieved over the wicked, over the evil and the violence of humanity. Listen to what God says. Verse 9. This is the account or the genealogy or the, the Toledot of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his generation. And he walked with God. It's just like his ancestor Enoch. Now Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the land or earth was corrupt. The NIV says corrupt in God's sight. The literal Hebrew text says, now the earth or land was ruined. And this is where translations, if you're reading NIV or some other translations, they that you can miss some of the key words happening that the Hebrew text is pretty clear about. One of the key words that's going to go through this Genesis text is this word shachath. And it means ruined, ruined. Mm -hmm. And it's a wordplay that's going to be found throughout the beginning of this flood account because God is basically instituting what later will become known in Leviticus, or excuse me, in Exodus as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The punishment will fit the crime. So you gouge out someone's eye, your eye gets gouged out. You knock out someone's tooth, your tooth gets knocked out. You kill someone, your life is forfeit. This was ancient uh, Torah law was the punishment fits the crime. Well, God's doing that in this instance. He's saying, Adam has ruined creation. So therefore, I am going to ruin him from the face of the earth. And and there's a, it's a, it's a distinct wordplay in Hebrew that doesn't come through in translations, especially NIV here. But the earth was corrupt, ruined in God's sight, and was full of violence. Hamas, violence. This is the problem of the flood. It's not that people were like out partying too hard. You know, it's not like people weren't going to church on Sunday. People were cussing and swearing and, you know, and, and, and being promiscuous. No, no, no. That stuff, yeah, God doesn't love that, but that's not what makes God go full, wipe the slate clean mode. What really rouses God's anger more than anything is violence 
against people, people hurting and destroying one another, attacking the image of God, because that's what humanity is, the image of God. So an attack on somebody else is an attack on God's image. And God sees the earth was filled with this. It was violent. I mean, think of like Mad Max on steroids. Like that's kind of the mindset, this time of these warlords taking whoever they want, uh, you know, as we saw in the last session, um, being wanting to just make their name great. And, 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 you know, there's no police force at this time. There's no armies. There's no peacekeeping. There's just might makes right. And it, it's a it's a pretty terrible time. It's a barbaric time. And we see that from the Genesis account, what Genesis is saying is, yeah, and the earth was full of violence. Humanity was undoing creation and attacking God by attacking each other and destroying each other. And so, where do we leave off? Verse, yeah, 11, the earth was ruined in God's sight and was full of violence. Verse 12, God saw how ruined, and Ivy says corrupt, but it's that word ruined. God saw how ruined the earth had become for all flesh on the earth had ruined their ways. There's the pun in Hebrew or the wordplay. The earth had become corrupt or the land. You can Every time you see earth, you can also say land had become corrupt because all flesh and it doesn't say all people in Hebrew. NIV says all people, but Hebrew says all flesh, Bashar, had ruined things. And so, verse 13, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all flesh, for the land is filled with violence because of them, or from their face, or from before them in Hebrew literally. So God says, I'm going, everything in this text is making clear that it's the violence. And, and that's the chief manifestation of the evil of humanity is the violence. And so God says, I'm going to, you think you know violence? You're about to see some. This is, this is a stark, this is not God acting on a whim. This is not God acting impetuously. This is the divine judge, the judge of all the earth, as Abraham's going to later call him, is uh, looking upon a ruined creation and says, at this point, I've got to wipe it clean. I've got to send ruin on the earth in order to undo what has happened. And so verse 13, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to ruin both them and the land or the earth. So Make yourself an ark of cypress wood or acacia wood or however you want to translate that word, gopher wood, some old translations. Make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark within a cubit of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. So this is a description of how God tells Noah, this is how you're going to build the ark. Now, the fact that people have tried to reconstruct the ark based on those handful of sentences is ridiculous. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. We have nothing even close to architectural ability to, anytime you see somebody like this is a recreation of the ark that's biblically accurate, as long as it's got three floors, it's that big and it's covered in pitch and tar, that's biblically accurate. 
So all of this stuff you see on History Channel and Nat Geo and, and you know, people that get all into it and um, Bruce Almighty or Evan Almighty, whichever was the movie where he made the arc, all of this stuff, it's all conjecture and added to it because the details were given is very little in the text. Why? Because the text isn't telling us how to build an ark. It's telling Noah how to do it. And this is this along with the tabernacle are the only directions ever given in Torah or the measurements of structures for humanity to build. And so the ark is very similar to the uh, tabernacle, the other ark, the ark of the covenant. They're going to be very similar in that regard, that God actually gives directions or measurements for them, unlike any other structure in the Torah. But that's all we get is this is thing that, that Noah is supposed to build. And he says, verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the land or on the earth to ruin, and Abby says destroy, but it's the same word from up above, to ruin all flesh under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. That's a callback to Genesis 2. Everything in the land or on the earth will perish. Here's the key, verse 18. But I will confirm my covenant with you and you will enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you you're to bring on the ark two of all living flesh male and female keep them alive with you from every kind of bird every kind of livestock every kind of creature that moves along the ground two will come to you to be kept alive you're to take every kind of food that's to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them so the commandment God gave says, all right, Noah, this is what's going to happen. This is why I'm doing it. And that key, that word, verse 18, the NIV says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Um, but but the word is a the better translation of what God's doing here. I will confirm or, or, or make, make fast, make solid my covenant with you. What this means, this is the first use of the word covenant in the Bible. This is the first time we ever hear the word barith, the Hebrew word for covenant. It's where we get old covenant, new covenant, uh, covenant with Israel, covenant with David. The, the concept of covenant is everywhere in scripture. It's introduced here. And it's introduced as something that God has already been in with Noah. God will confirm his covenant by saving Noah and his family and the animals. That's what God's doing. God's covenant is with his people is one where he is their divine suzerain, their divine king, their divine protector. And a covenant responsibility for a more powerful to a less powerful uh, entity is for the more powerful entity to protect and preserve and uphold and fight on behalf of the less powerful entity. And this is what God's doing here. And he's going to do it throughout scripture. It's going to be everywhere in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, the whole book of Deuteronomy is going to be based around an ancient Near East Hittite suzerainty treaty covenant. And so God is, is acknowledging he's in covenant with Noah. This is why Noah was saved. Noah walked with God. That means he was in covenant with God. And so God upheld him. God protected him. That's what it means to be in covenant with God. And so the chapter ends, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So God gives Noah this commandment, tells him what to do. 
And the text makes it clear, Noah walked with God, he was in covenant with God, he was obedient to God. Obedience comes after covenant faith. This is going to carry into Israel and into the New Testament. Works don't save. Covenant faith saves. Works proceed out from covenant faith. This is, this is bedrock biblical theology 101. Works don't save. Covenant faith relationship saves. And evidence of that relationship is obedient works. Law always comes after grace. This chapter section began, Noah found grace, chen, favor, grace in God's eyes. And so grace is the foundation from which works are built. Works never earn grace. Earned grace is an oxymoron. Works flow from grace. That's biblical theology from right here in Genesis. That's covenant theology from right here in Genesis. And it will go all the way into the New Testament. We are saved by grace through faith. And then the works, the obedience, the life of holiness flows out of that. Just like it did with Noah. We'll pause here. Um, because we'll, we'll pick it up next week and we'll look at how the flood story plays out. But a couple of things, I guess, that are worth noting when we're talking about the flood story. Sometimes you'll read that the flood story is two original accounts, one by an author who they call J, which is short for Yahwist, and one by an author who they call P, which is short for Priestly. And it's popular among older scholars to say that the flood is, there was originally a J story and a P story, and they were different. And so the Genesis narrator has woven them together. And so you read some commentaries by, by good scholars, I mean, solid scholars, and they say, so here we can see these two things woven together, and they give examples of why they think so, like things happening twice, or things being repeated. But other scholars, and particularly more recently, they've said, mm, that's probably not what's going on, actually, because this whole thing is constructed in a carefully crafted chiasm, and it's Hebrew narrative, and some of the characteristics of Hebrew narrative are repetition for the importance of, for the sake of emphasis, um, recapitulation, telling something and then telling it again in a slightly different way. These are all normal ways of writing. So we can't really look at this and go, oh, we can see two sources that have been crafted together. That's, that becomes, it devolves quickly into utter subjectivity. And there's no real objective standard by which you can prove that. Um, so all of that way of reading the text, it's, it's kind of called the documentary hypothesis or the Wellhausian hypothesis um, or, or some source critical theory. It's, it's, it's just not, it doesn't make the best sense of the text, I think. Uh, it's popular. You go to any Old Testament college course, any history of religions course, um, many, most seminaries, you're still going to have to learn it because it dominated 19th, 20th, and early, well, not really early, 19th and 20th century scholarship 
was dominated by documentary scholarship. Um, but I, I don't I don't see very much value in it at all in understanding the text. Uh, it says more about the interpreters than it does about the Genesis text, I think. The second thing to point out is the Genesis account is crafted in such a way that it is very similar to other ancient Near East flood accounts. So for instance, in ancient Near East, the Gilgamesh epic has a flood account that's very similar to Genesis. And it, it's so similar that some people have just assumed that Genesis, because Genesis is later, some people have just assumed that the Genesis author, Moses or whoever, just copied. The problem is that while there are similarities, the differences vastly outweigh the similarities. The similarities are in the events somewhat, but the differences are striking. So in the, in the Genesis flood, we've seen why God sent the flood. In the Babylonian and the Sumerian and the Akkadian flood stories, the gods send the flood because they can't sleep, because humans are loud. That's, that's it. And one of the gods decides to do it, or some of the gods decides to do it, and then another of the gods tells a human in secret, hey, go build this big boat and get on it and save yourself. You know, like it's this, like this God goes behind the back. And so the, the Babylonian, Sumerian, the Akkadian, the ancient Near East version of Noah is saved because his patron God clues him in on the plans of the other gods to send the flood. And then when the flood actually happens, there's a great line that says, um, for one day the south storm blew, gathering speed as it blew, submerging the mountains, overtaking the people like a battle. No one can see his fellow, nor can the people be recognized from heaven. So this is like this flood is just breaking through. The gods were frightened by the deluge, and shrinking back, they ascended to the heaven of Anu. The gods cowered like dogs, crouched against the outer wall. Ishtar cried out like a woman in travail. The sweet-voiced mistress of the gods moaned aloud. The olden days are, alas, turned to clay, because I bespoke evil in the assembly of the gods. How could I bespeak evil in the assembly of the gods, ordering battle for the destruction of my people? When it was I myself who had given birth to my people. So this is Ishtar lamenting that she had wanted this flood to happen. And then when it does, she's like cowering and freaking out because it's happening. The Anunnaki gods weep with her. The gods all humbled sit and weep, their lips drawn tight, one and all. And then it goes on six days and six nights, blows the flood wind as the south storm sweeps the land. When the seventh day arrived, the flood carrying south storm subsided in the battle, which it had fought like an army. The sea grew quiet. The tempest was still. The flood ceased. I looked at the weather. Stillness had set in. All, the, all of mankind had returned to clay. The landscape was at level as a flat roof. I opened a hatch and light fell upon my face. And then it goes on down. On Mount Nisir, the ship came to a halt. And then it goes on down more. I sent forth, a, I set free a dove. The dove went forth but came back. Since no resting place for it was visible, she turned around. Then I sent forth a, a swallow. The swallow went forth and came back. Since no resting place was visible, she turned around. Then I set forth a raven. The raven went forth and seeing that the waters had diminished, he eats, circles, calls, and turns not around. Then I led out to the four winds and offered a sacrifice. I poured out a libation on the top of the mountain. 
uh, and goes on and on. You know, the gods smelled the savor. The gods smelled the sweet savor. The gods crowded like flies about the sacrifice. And so this, this has, this is the, the account, the Babylonian and the Sumerian Kadian account, but you have this very similar, you know, sending out ravens after the flood, um, offering a sacrifice after the flood. All this stuff is very similar to what Noah does, but it's because that was normal in the ancient Near East. This is stock language and stock imagery. So the question is, to what degree is the Genesis account based on or related to the Babylonian accounts? And scholars wrestle with that. Um, they come down to two camps, basically maximalist and minimalists. And so minimalists say that the ancient Near East and the Genesis account are both coming from a prior account of an actual flood that wiped out humanity or at least all of humanity in that area. So Genesis is, is kind of the biblical version of that earlier residual memory that humanity has. And the ancient Near East, the Atrahasis epic and the Gilgamesh epic and all of these are also their ways of remembering it. Maximalists say, no, actually the, the Babylonian accounts existed and the Genesis account actually uses the Babylonian accounts and draws from them in specific terminology and concepts, but it does a massive switch to basically demythologize the ancient Near East myths as a polemic against those myths. So Genesis takes the Babylonian popular flood accounts and says, yeah, you guys all know this story, right? Well, let me tell you, it wasn't Utnapishtim or Atrahasis. It was actually Noah. And it wasn't because the gods were tired from not being able to sleep because humans were noisy. It's because humans were violent. And it wasn't when the flood came that the gods were scared and cowering and didn't know what they had done. No, God was in control the whole time. He was the one who sent it. He was the one who withdrew it. And so what Maximus would argue is that the, the biblical authors are well aware of the Genesis of the parallels in the ancient Near East, and they're actually constructing their story, the Genesis account, as a what C.S. Lewis calls as a true myth, as a way to say, hey, this is what you guys think happened. Let me let me use that concept, but let me tell you how it actually happened. So those are where, you know, people will take different views, different opinions. And if you read the commentaries on Genesis and the flood story, you'll, you'll find different perspectives. But the, the Noah story, we'll wrap it up now. The Noah story, uh, again, it's not a fable. It's not a story just set off by itself where, you know, there's just random stories in the Bible. And the flood story is about trusting God when all seems dark and stormy outside. That's not what the Noah story is about. The Noah story is showing the descent of humanity from crown of creation to only evil all the time and how it was so bad that God had to say, I'm wiping the slate clean. But within that, God had made a covenant with humanity and God had preserved a righteous remnant and that righteous remnant was protected by grace and that grace worked itself out in the faith that that righteous remnant exercised and then that obedience of faith. And that all of that 
is paradigmatic for how God rescues and saves his people in every age. And so Noah becomes this kind of microcosm of, of later Israel or even later humanity. So that's much more along the lines of how to read the Genesis and the flood account. It is not as a fable or an allegory or a bedtime story for children. I, I don't know how Noah's Ark ever became a children's story. Honestly, you go to every church nursery and there's going to be an arky arky with animals on it. That blows my mind because this is the most dark, violent, terrifying story in the Torah by far. And yet somehow this has become a children's uh, nursery. I, I don't know. It just, I don't have kids. I don't know, but I just think it's weird when churches make this a kid's story because it, it's a horrendous, awful, dark, evil time in humanity's history. And that's the cool thing about the Bible is the Bible doesn't shy away from an accurate diagnosis of the destructive nature of sin. It doesn't shy away from showing humanity or God in its full light and letting us wrestle with it. You know, this makes people wrestle. God was grieved. God, God was, God felt pain. How does that work? He's God. Everything's perfect. If you're God, you're omniscient, you're omnipotent. You know the end, you know what's going to happen. How can you feel anything? You know everything's going to work out good in the end. He feels pain. Just like Jesus saw Lazarus. He was there to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he saw the people weeping, what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. So the God of Noah, the God of the flood story, is the God of the New Testament. And that is a God who feels the pain of his people. When his people go through pain, heartache, suffering, God doesn't sit aloft, detached, unfeeling. He's actually there feeling the pain with them. And we can cry out, why, why don't you stop it? Why don't you act? Why don't you change it? You know, why do you have to do? And, and we won't get an answer necessarily. Sometimes we might, but we won't get an answer always. What we have to do is trust that we're in the care of the God who cares. And if he's allowing evil, if he's allowing stuff, he's only going to allow it to a certain limit. And after that, his judgment will come. And that's, you know, all of this is kind of wrapped up in the Noah story. So read it over this week. Read all of 7, 8, and 9. There's three chapters. And we'll, um, we'll come back in our next session and we'll, we'll try to work through at least 7, maybe eight, 7 and 8. But, but we're in the thick of it. And this is kind of the, the, the last main epic before we get to the, the beginning of the Bible, which is introduction of Abram.